Adrenaline in my soul. <laughs> Holy crap, it's Cody Rhodes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode five of Card Marks. Uh, I just want to point out, Justice. <laughs> Stop laughing, damn it. Oh, dear. I had a professor who will go unnamed because I don't want to give her the satisfaction. I took a podcasting class with her and she did not like me for whatever reason. Probably because I didn't have to try that hard to get an A in her class. And she told me that most podcasts do not make it to five episodes. Well, suck it, Brenda. Here we are. As of the time of recording, we are about a week removed from WrestleMania. By the time this drops, it'll be about a week and a half. But, you know, who cares? Because even though WrestleMania is about two nights, it's really honestly two weeks. Because they named Raw, WrestleMania Raw before it. SmackDown before it, WrestleMania SmackDown. Then we have WrestleMania Night 1, WrestleMania Night 2. The Postmania Raw, the Postmania SmackDown. It's two weeks of content. And we're going to kind of go over that. And then we will tell you... Our most famous defections because uh, maybe one of those happened over Mania Weekend. Justice, did you have any initial thoughts over WrestleMania 38? So you and I have two slightly different perspectives on the entirety of the card and the weekend in general. I watched it from Peacock, but yeah, overall on the card for WrestleMania 38, I thought it was pretty solid. The one thing WWE has over its competition is that just sheer scale of their events and you're they're right there's not much bigger than wrestlemania out there man because i am in the same boat as you for night one i watched it at my house and then the second morning i woke up and got major fomo and i attended uh night two of wrestlemania and i'll tell i'll be perfectly honest i was a little nervous that i would not get my money's worth because cards on the table night one overtook night two by a long shot as far as in-ring quality story and just overall grabbing you by the dick but the second that triple h's music hit when i'm sitting in that crowd i immediately got my money back dude. <laughs> immediately because i did not expect that to happen and i'll be honest i was not not crying <laughs> and it's kind of okay because everyone around me was also emotional but it's also kind of not okay because i am a mcguire crier if that makes any sense <laughs> if you've ever seen any of the spider-man movies or the sam raimi spider-man movies rather and how he cries that's exactly me He's got a great ugly cry. Let's oh, precisely. I have the most wonderful ugly cry in the world. So, Justice, did you have a personal favorite match over the weekend? I think my personal favorite is probably the match that I would say should have made it in the night one, which was Bianca Belair versus Becky Lynch for the Raw Women's Championship. I feel like that was, to me personally, the match of the night. Even like even just the finish alone was just kind of like, that's, that's a WrestleMania moment. And I found that match to be probably the best of the card. Man, I would levy it further to say that's match of the weekend for me. And I do disagree with you slightly. I believe it should have opened night one. Because personally, it's stone cold in Texas, my dude. Mm. You, you gotta have that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Personally, you might get a little angry with me, but it's the best long-term story I think that the main roster has told since I genuinely cannot think of one. They like to tell you that it's Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar, but just because it's the most prominent doesn't mean they're good. Because if you'll go back to the SummerSlam, buddy, they worked us. They worked us and they played us like a fiddle. You were angry, I was angry, but it fed more into that match. Because by the end of it, I found myself, as soon as Bianca got Becky in that KOD, I said verbatim, gotcha, bitch. It was strange that that was on the same night or was it? It was on the same night as Ronda versus Charlotte. Which, in my humble opinion, I was so happy that 
Ronda lost, but to me, it was honestly a bit of a letdown. What do you think of that match? I thought it was a fine match overall. It was one of those things where it just couldn't compare to what Bianca and Becky were doing because it felt like, to me personally, that Bianca and Becky went out there basically to make a statement. Charlotte Flair and Ronda, that match, to me, felt like it suffered a bit from miscommunication and the finish was not as impactful as the finish for Bianca and Becky. Well... That's what happens when you put an actual story in it and not just name value. Because what's the, what was the story between Charlotte and Ronda? Do you have an idea? The problem is, it is a, like, oh yeah, well we're going to do this. Because we do want Ronda versus Becky. But we don't want to do that now. And thank God they didn't do it now. Because like you mentioned, we were all worked into believing that they're just going to forget about Bianca. That fear rose within us when Ronda won the Rumble. Because then it was like, well, they're probably going to obviously do ronda versus becky but they should do becky versus bianca and they surprised us by putting you know ronda versus charlotte but it was a bit of a stop yet because there's no real story there outside of like well no not even that because it's just flair versus rousey it's the name yeah it's it's a name fight because even like if you want to go like well charlotte cost ronda the title way back when ronda got pinned by becky yeah it's 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 threadbare in terms of like actual reasoning and logic. It's not a bad match by any stretch of the imagination, but it's just not, uh, it's neither, it's neither Charlotte's best work nor Ronda's best work. Oh, absolutely not. And we may or may not skip over some portions. So just off the top of my head that we might not be able to get to. Vince, you can go to hell for relegating two minutes to the new day. The tag team triple threat at the beginning of the night too was tremendous. Well, I popped so hard when Montez did the suck it spot and so did the rest of AT&T Stadium. <laughs> and you have to know this, dude. They had Ezekiel Elliott and Micah Parsons. I haven't gone back and watched the broadcast, so I don't know if they showed them. Mm -hmm. The entire crowd was booing Ezekiel Elliott. I feel like I remember that. He was standing next to Micah Parsons, and they liked Micah Parsons, but the second he showed up on screen, boo. And I'm like, well, it might be because it's a wrestling show and he's a celebrity. Later in the show, they show a uh, bald fellow from Yellowstone. I do not watch the program. Yeah! <laughs> everybody loved him oh my goodness yeah oh dude that was a peacock spot absolutely that was such a peacock spot but i do have to tell you looking back probably in maybe even a year i would say maybe five but logistically vince mcmahon going up there at 76 years old and having a full-blown match is probably going to be one of the worst moments in wrestlemania history but by God, if everybody didn't pop a second, he ripped that shirt off and everybody saw the black tank top. Dude, it was the most electric moment of the evening. And then all of a sudden the glass shatters. Holy shit! I got to be there for the single worst Stone Cold Stunner of all time. They can never take that away from me, Justice. Dude, never. it's like he took a stunner while also trying to enter the ring. For the Royal Rumble 2005, where he blew out his quads. It's like, take that and take Vince's stunner and combine it into one. That's what he did. My man is going so senile because when Austin Theory's music hit after uh, Vince McMahon won, he got his cues mixed up and thought that Steve was coming out and completely telegraphed the finish. Did we care? No. But still, that's unprofessional, Vincent. And then he, I think he got so excited to take the stunner bump properly he fell on his knees so bad because he wanted to lean into the stunner. And it just didn't work. It's a moment. The thing that maybe pops me the hardest was when you see it happen. And after a few minutes later, the thought went through my mind. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're, but they're never, they're never going to show it like that again. And sure as a sunrise on the Raw after Mania, they were like, okay, here's that moment where Stone Cold stunned Vince. 
And they cut it together to where you missed the whole bit where Vince pretty much looked like he was about to die. <laughs> and just cut to like, oh, it was a smooth stunner. And yeah, I was like, yeah, that, that's going to be one of those mania moments where it's like, yeah, they're not going to probably show that on a replay. So if you've seen it now, enjoy it while you can. Personally, I would have treated it like a Titus World Slide. Oh, dude, that's what they should do. Exactly. It's funny. Lead into the joke. Stone Cold couldn't contain his laughter. Like, come on. It's totally fine that they couldn't get a proper stunner on the 70-plus-year-old man. It's understandable. When we talk about the main event, everybody was super excited. But by golly, if we didn't work ourselves into thinking that The Rock was going to come out next, because that is the finish that has been telegraphed in both of Roman's big programs. Or three of them, sorry. Because he got into the program with Edge. That's when John Cena comes out after his victory. Then he beats John Cena. Brock Lesnar comes out after his victory. And I don't know about anybody else, but when I walked in that building, I thought to myself, Roman is going to win. That was a foregone conclusion. This is going to be Brock's last match, and we're going to hear the Rock music hit. And if I'll be honest, we were a little disappointed when Rock's music didn't hit. And it also didn't help that Roman clearly injured himself during the course of the match, and it ended prematurely because we were thinking that it was going to go hell for leather for about five more minutes, but then spear, one, two, three, let's go home. And I'll be honest, when I saw him raising those belts and he couldn't get his left hand up to put the Universal on the same level as WWE, I just thought he was tremendously selling because I believed Roman Reigns that much. But then I come to find that he dislocated his shoulder and then I was a little bit more understanding. But that doesn't change how deflating that that is. Hindsight's twenty twenty one. So seeing how the match is all laid out, it would have made sense to be like, okay, well, you know, if Bianca versus Becky main evented, that would probably have been, a, because it was a better match overall, it probably would have sent the crown over much happier. When it comes to the Rock and the Roman thing, I'm more of the stance of, ironically enough, I take the same stance as I do with the WBDC movies, in that they'll announce something, but I'll believe it when I see it. When I see someone on set doing something, then I'll believe the movie is actually happening. With The Rock, I feel that way with him returning to the WWE. It's like, I'll believe it when I see it happen. Well, what happened for me was we're watching the monitor over at AT&T Stadium. And from what I understand, they're just doing the Peacock feed. Yeah. And you see the logo go by on the bottom. And the guy I was with, he was like, oh, well, the show's over. And I go, have you never seen Gargano Champa? Yeah. Give it about five seconds. Because I thought they were just going to work us. But then, sure enough, fades to black. But everybody did give Brock Lesnar a standing ovation. Because if I were a betting man, I would say that that was Brock Lesnar's last match. Oh, he said recently in one of the interviews that he's been doing that originally he was all set and good and done after fighting Drew at Mania a couple years ago. Yeah, that was the case, but I'm so glad he came back. His return since, to me personally, has been the most interesting Brock has been since, I would say, since he first came back way back in 2011. I believe it was 2011. 2012. When he, 2012, when he returned. Yes, because it was after seeing a loss to Rock. So when he returned then, and he did the whole angle where he's basically like, I'm going to run WWE, y'all going to meet my demands. That was a very interesting beat for him at the time. And this is the most interesting thing since he's done since then, to me personally. I'd say it's probably the third best match they've had out of the, what, five? Because the best one, in my <laughs> opinion, is the WrestleMania 31 match where Seth happens. Second yes. one was the match they had at Crown Jewel. Okay, yeah. I'd probably put this at three. And I'll be honest, it's been a while since I watched their SummerSlam match. Comfortably at the bottom is WrestleMania 34 because that was a bunch of bollocks. And one final note before we move on to the uh, Cody and Seth match. I would like to shout out the Women's Fatal 4-Way because they had a tall task following the Jackass match. And I think they did a tremendous job, particularly 
Sasha and Naomi. I do not know what they're calling their new finisher, but I think it's really badass. I think I'm glad you brought their match because I didn't want to forget it either. Great finisher that they have together as a team. Strong entrance with the, you know with the nice car and the feel the glow. It's one of those matches where it's just like yeah, just go, just rip and run. It was like the Rey Mysterio triple threat for his heavyweight title. They didn't have all that much time, but they packed what they could at that time, and I was very entertained. You know what sucks though? I was in line for a pizza during the Jackass match. I didn't even get my pizza <laughs> because when I got to the front of the line, they told me. Hey man, the wait's gonna be 20 minutes. And I said to myself, after I'd heard the jackass music go off and Johnny Knoxville had won, I don't wanna miss the next match. And so I just walked to my seat without a pizza and without watching Jackass Live. Okay, I was gonna say, like, if you had timed that right when it was like, I think like they did the Hall of Fame thing again, you'd have been solid. Because- okay, okay, buddy, I, I gotta disagree with you there. I popped, so I know it was stupid because of the second night, but I was there the second night. I wasn't there the first night. I got to see Taker. <laughs> Yeah. I was 12 again. I get you. I get you. That's one of those matches where I know a lot of people, some people are going to be quite upset, but it seemed like Sami Zayn is in a really cool spot to do something really, really cool. That seemed to me like the the absolute insanity of it was just kind of like, yeah, again, that's spectacle. And <laughs> no one does that quite like WWE. I'd say that him and Kevin are in the same boat because the internet wrestling community was so up in arms that they had signed extensions. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that both of these matches were what got them to sign those extensions because Sami Zayn got to have a lot of fun. And I'm watching the main event of night one. The first thing I say is I understand completely why Kevin signed back now because he got to have a match with Stone Cold Steve Austin. It's not going to be so satisfying when the kingdom of Saudi Arabia hears that Stone Cold came back for one more match because were I a betting man, I'd say there's a 60-40 split. We get like Stone Cold versus Dolph Ziggler. Oh, that's entirely possible. Ah, uh, yeah, that, there's, there's a chance that, that might happen. Just I'm back- sorry I put I manifested that into the universe, but look at the history. As long as it's not Stone Cold versus another where it's like... Never say never. Y- yeah. Oh, my God. God. Help me. So finally, we're going to talk about arguably the biggest headline out of WrestleMania 38, which was the return of Cody Rhodes to the WWE after six years and an entire wrestling juggernaut company. Justice, what was your opinion on this return? I thought it was really, really, really dope. I'll be honest, I'm not the hugest Cody Mark, per se. I like Cody Rose quite a bit. I think he's a great wrestler. I've been around watching wrestling for his entire career. I remember when he first came in as Dusty's son and was feuding with Randy right out the gate all the way to now. And they made this feel really, really important. It was really, really special. And he was in there with a really, really good opponent. And so for me, in terms of like, what was possible, what was the best possible scenario, this was it. And by God, they did that. Um, even down to the fact that he has everything that has been... It's a nightmare family. Yeah. Completely. Just transferred over to WWE television, which if you'd have told me that a month ago, I would never have believed you. Yeah. They didn't give him some generic, quickly done music. They didn't make him change his gear. He didn't come out in a Stardust outfit. He came out as the American Nightmare uh, Cody Rhodes. He came out as Homelander. So it's totally fine. It's It was like, oh, holy crap, this is going to be cool. And they let him cut a monologue on Raw. That wasn't... They let him say wrestler. They don't ever let anybody say wrestler. When he comes back and he has that music, when he gets to cut the promo he wants to cut and has a match like with Steph Rollins, it's one of those things that makes you think like, okay, yeah, this dude Price set him up in a, in a situation where he's not going to take anything that's not good. It's kind of like when Edge came back where he was like, okay, 
Edge is probably not going to be mired in a 24-7 division, thank God. But it's one of those things where he's only going to be doing to what he feels is going to be stuff worthy of his time uh, because he wants to make these moments last because he doesn't know how long he has left. With Cody, it's like, well, I left here because I didn't feel like I was was able to attain what I was capable of. And so now he's back and has raised his stock value. He's not going to be doing just like, they're not going to be able to just pull the same crap with him that they pull with the NXT call-ups we've had for the last five years. With him, it's probably like, oh yeah, he's only going to be doing like some probably really, really cool stuff. So yeah, that promo and just like, I am very excited to see what happens next with Cody Rhodes. This is probably pretty naive if I understand the company, but they proved me wrong at WrestleMania and the night after WrestleMania. Besides a Braun Breaker or a Drew McIntyre, this guy seems like the most likely candidate to take one of those straps off Roman Reigns. Am I crazy for saying that? You're not crazy. I'll, I'll say I'll believe it when It'll I be see through chicanery. It. Don't get me wrong. It won't be clean. But I think something that would have got him in the door was getting that title. I think his likelihood of getting that title back is about the same as it is for Edge right now. Because I, I do think Edge is, before Edge retires again, He's going to have another championship brain on his on his on his uh, on his resume, and I think Cody's return is one of those things. Like I mentioned, the glass ceiling. I'm like, I feel like he is in a really good position to get through that ceiling and win a world championship in this go around. God willing, he stays healthy, and you know, depending on what they do with the title scene. But yeah, I absolutely believe he's got a real legitimate shot of obtaining a world championship within the next two three years. And so to pivot off of arguably the biggest defection in the uh, AEW-WWE war, quote-unquote, I thought a fun topic to discuss would be what we believe to be the most impactful defections or impactful to us that have happened in wrestling history. Justice, did you have a person you wanted to talk about defecting from one company to the other? So this one's a bit out of the box, and it's a bit of a—it's an interesting take, and I know when I say it, some people are going to have certain opinions on it. But my choice of a defection that I believe was, to me at least, real impactful was the defection of Shinsuke Nakamura to from New Japan to the WWE. So I was not watching New Japan when Shinsuke did this defection. I my first inter, my first introduction to Shinsuke Nakamura was when he came to WWE and Triple H and Rare Amigo were taking pictures with him, signing the contract and everything. Because it's a big deal. But Nakamura, being the awesome wrestler that he is was immediately able to capture my imagination. His first match with Sami Zayn at the TakeOver in Dallas before WrestleMania 32 is amongst probably one of the greatest TakeOver matches of all time. If I had to wager, it's my favorite match of the 2010s. It's phenomenal. It is a strong introduction. And he continued to go in NXT, putting on banger after banger after banger, having great matches with Samoa Joe and Bobby Roode and Finn Balor. I've heard people talk about like just the sea of red that you would see in the crowds because of his shirts and singing the song, which was a beautiful, beautiful thing, The Rising Sun. So learning, knowing uh, Shinsuke's work through WWE led me to kind of, you know, want to you know learn more about what his previous life was like and how big of a deal he was in New Japan. And doing my research, I came to realize that he was probably the biggest star of New Japan at the time of his departure, arguably. During the 2000s, there were three guys that pretty much were meant to carry New Japan into the future. This was Hiroshi Tanahashi, this was Katsuri Shibata, and it was Shinsuke Nakamura. And there were pretty much like three, three musketeers. Nakamura was one where he needed to find something with him to kind of 
grab hold of the audience. By the way, again, this is all pretty much what I've learned as a gaijin, as a foreigner from elsewhere. People that were watching in Japan at the time may differ on how they see this. But um, from what I understand, he was one that when he found this strong style thing for him, it pretty much sent him into the stratosphere. Working, working, and working brought him into a feud with Hiroshi Tanahashi, who was the ace of New Japan, who's their, for lack of a better term, their John Cena, their AJ Styles of TNA, like their guy. And they had a long history of feud, many, many matches across Wrestle Kingdoms, the most notable of which was one where they were going to face each other for the Intercontinental Championship of New Japan. And at the time, the world's champion, Kazuka Okada, and he was fighting Tetsuya Naito, who was a star on the rise at the time. But because of the fans of New Japan wanting so, so feverishly to have basically see Nakamura and Tanahashi wrestle, they put it up to a vote. And it, what ended up happening was the Intercontinental Championship main evented a Wrestle Kingdom over the World Heavyweight Championship uh, because Nakamura and Tanahashi were so popular much more so than uh, Naito, who was kind of having in a bit of a Roman Reigns period, and Okada. Just think about that. An Intercontinental Championship made it the biggest pay-per-view of an entire show in a company. That's nuts. Closest the big dub ever came was British Bulldog and Bret Hart for the IC title at SummerSlam, and that's only because it was in England. So just thinking about that, and again, that's something, again, like I mentioned earlier with tropes, that's something I'd like to see more companies do where it's like you don't have to have your main title main event just because it's the heavyweight title so just going on with that so nakamura was a big big star in new japan you know the whole michael jackson thing all that great charisma great and in, uh intensity in the ring great work rate and so when he decided to make the announcement that he was leaving uh, it was a big deal because they were losing arguably their biggest star and he came over to wwe now his work in wwe people have varying opinions on how well they handled Nakamura as a character and a worker from NXT to WWE. I personally feel like he and Asuka are in similar boats where they've racked up a lot of championships, even though that in their more, their more recent work hasn't been as strong, mainly just story-wise. But I do feel like Nakamura leaving New Japan and coming over to WWE was a big deal to them because New Japan lost one of their biggest stars, if not their biggest star. And he decided in a way to basically in a way of redefining himself and settling into something new in terms of wrestling, which he obviously loves, he chose WWE as his next home to be. And thus far, we've gotten a lot of really cool moments with Shinsuke in WWE. So I would say Shinsuke's defection from NJPW to WWE, that was a defection that brought me to, introduced me basically to New Japan, a different culture of wrestling. That is an incredibly interesting perspective because you're absolutely right. Were it not for Shinsuke Nakamura defecting over from New Japan Pro Wrestling at the time, I had no idea what New Japan Pro Wrestling was. In NXT, we had Hideo Itami, who was formerly Kenta and who is now currently Kenta. Uh But they changed him to Hideo Itami to try to make him fit that WWE mold. They didn't do that with Shinsuke Nakamura. They let him come over as the wrestling deity made of sex and kicks that he is. (laughs) My pick is a little bit more rudimentary, but it's not the most important. But it was the biggest one to date. It was the gunshot heard around the world, per se. And I'm talking about John Moxley over to AEW. Because this was an instance where formerly Dean Ambrose turned down big money from the Fed to go chase his dreams. Because at the end of the day, how much money do you really need? And I can say that all day, but when you're presented with however many millions of dollars, odds are you're going to sign up for that many millions of dollars. John Moxley didn't do that. 
John Moxley took his ball and went to a bigger yard, or rather a more fun yard to play in where you're not so pigeonholed because he was Wacky Dean Ambrose. He was never going to be anything else except Wacky Dean Ambrose, even if they did happen to put the WWE title on him once. Having John Moxley show up at the first pay-per-view for AEW was essentially comparable to Lex Luger showing up on the first Nitro, uh. but way bigger and on a way larger scale. I just repeated myself there, but you understand what I'm talking about. Having someone who had been a mainstay at WWE who had been a former world champion and was going to continue to be prominent in the main event scene had he stayed, he wouldn't have won a hell of a whole lot or been treated how you should have treated him. He made a conscious decision to leave the biggest wrestling company in the world on a bet. Do I think it was a little... the pop? I'm a big pop guy. I went to the Mick Foley School of Wrestling. It might not be the traditional pop because the pop that I enjoy is hit music. Ah! But this built like a cacophony because it took however many people in the audience however long to realize that he was rolling through who is that oh my god that's that's dean ambrose he what what and it does take away from the moment a little bit when chris jericho has to sit in the ring and pretend that he doesn't know what's going on while he walks through (laughs) but that's wrestling you suspend your disbelief for that and you just get to watch him come in and the crowd continues to roar and the noise continues to build, and he finally gets in that ring, and you can see it just from on television. This is not Dean Ambrose, who was so clearly defeated toward the end of his WWE run when he was sticking needles in his ass and wearing gas masks and getting thrown out by Nia Jax. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There wasn't a story there. He had a new fire in his eyes. He had an intensity. The dirty deeds was gone. Welcome to the paradigm shift. For my money, I think that that is the most important defection to date. You can say that Cody Rhodes' defection to the WWE is more of a splash, and you can make that argument all day. Yes, it is, because it's the guy who formed AEW essentially going over to the competition. But John Moxley heading to AEW gave it so much more credibility, because yes, Chris Jericho was over there, but you can make the argument that he was a quote-unquote, I don't believe this, a has-been, And that's what TNA used to do. They used to have their post-40 guys going to work over there, like your Kevin Nashes, your Scott Halls, your Jeff Jarrett's. But this was the first time that someone in their prime, or first time in a while, rather, consciously left the WWE, was in a main event slot, not the one they wanted, and consciously made a risk, bet on themselves, and bolstered an entire company because of it. I would say that, to your point, this is maybe the most impactful of this recent wave of superstars defecting from WWE, going somewhere else, um, and pursuing basically creative freedom. It's, I would say it's the most important one and probably the most impactful one because like, so like for instance, like with Brody Lee, unfortunately he did not get to make his debut to the live Rochester crowd because unfortunately of the 2020 pandemic, that just was not possible. And uh, for instance, a guy like for me personally, like Neville, a uh, Pac, uh, his defection when he went back to, he went back to working in Japan, and to uh, and then eventually came over to AEW, and to me that's really cool for him because again he left for much of the same reasons Mox did, and guys like that, guys like FTR, guys like Keith Lee, seeing them all leave and you know be able to pursue something in greater um, outside of the company has been awesome. But I feel like Moxes was the biggest. I feel like Moxes was the one, and partly that's because the crowd loved him so much in WWE and saw what they were doing with him. And there's this catharsis when you get to see him elsewhere striving 
be, you know, and not like you said, handicapped to what we would see in WWE. And also his was the first and maybe I guess the the template for basically the post WWE, you know, production promo of I'm breaking out of prison and I'm finally I'm finally yeah. free. He he was the original one before it got so outdated because if I'm not mistaken, Buddy did one, Alistair did one, Ruby didn't do one. Yeah, Ruby was the runaway. She's mm-hmm. the runaway. But yeah, Black and uh, Murphy. Take Ruby off dark. Jesus Christ. She's so fantastic. To me, Moxley's defection is the most important of the 21st century because of the pure shift in direction. And you see that happen with guys like Keith Lee. They're so happy. They're so happy when they come over and they get to be themselves. The reason I don't count Keith Lee's is because that was not technically a defection. He was fired unjustly. They defected him. Exactly. That wave of the, all of them, of all those superstars, and it's a lot of amazing talents in that list. Mox is, is probably the the flag bearer in that, in terms of a guy that clearly, you know, they could have done the world with. And it was obvious, it was just kind of like, yeah, this is, you know, a new age stone cold. But in a way, like, because WWE was just the, the creative blunders that they'd had at the time and decisions that they made it was very much just kind of like evident like yeah mox could not be happy while he was there and so him leaving was pretty much i feel like was one of the torch oh and i can bring this up as well because sean spears brought it up where he talked about you know wanting to ask for his release and them basically coming back at him saying we don't want it to make it look like everyone's abandoning ship and well, that's I, what's happening <laughs> yeah and a lot of that's happening i feel like in part because it was mox was the big one but then once once that happens it's once he decides he's not going to renew, yeah, it's like a lot of superstars just like, I'm not going to renew or I'm asking for my release or whatever the case may be. Because if like, yeah, if he's leaving, if he's not happy, then I'm definitely not. I haven't even been on TV in this, you know, fiscal quarter. So like, yeah, there you can only imagine how unsatisfied or creatively fulfilled or not fulfilled you know, many talent are, even if you go further down the card in comparison to Mox. So yeah, I'd say it's probably the most important one of this new era, absolutely. All right, I'll leave you with one thing, ladies and gentlemen. Justice, where do you think Cody Rhodes will be a year from now? A year from now, I expect to see Cody Rhodes as perhaps the Intercontinental Champion of the WWE. Personally, I think Cody Rhodes, it will go one of two ways. Either he is the world champion next year or he's out of the company or rather staying at home because I think they got him on a multi-year deal and they will not let him go to back to AEW if they can help it. Alrighty, ladies and gentlemen. Well, did you like us? Did you hate us? Tell me either way. I can fight you on Twitter or we can have a big old hug. Thanks for checking us out. Check you later.